Okay, um, welcome to the James Cook Exhibition at the British Library. August 2018 is 250 years since the first Cook voyage left, so this is one of many shows that's going on this year to celebrate that history and commemorate it. I haven't actually been to the exhibition yet, so this is basically going to be my live reactions, which should be interesting. Um, But I'm just going to go through the exhibition and we're pretty much just going to respond to what I see as we come in. So immediately there is a map of the uh, sort of what Europe thought of the Pacific at this time. So it's a 17th century Dutch map where you get the little snippets of Western Australia and tiny bits of Cape of Carpentaria. Um, as well as parts of the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Islands. But this is quite an interesting place to start because it's giving the sense immediately that there's already some knowledge. So we know that Cook isn't discovering Australia right from the off. Obviously, Cook isn't discovering Australia, but there are plenty of people that seem to believe that or seem to sort of hold on to that view quite closely. I've had problems with the British Library exhibitions before, but I've always been quite fond of the way that they tend to start with maps. Um, It's always great to have a sense of where you are when you're going into an exhibition, and to give a kind of geographical location like that can be really effective. So, you might be able to hear there's a video playing in the background. I'm not going to try and avoid that as much as possible. But immediately opposite the map is a painting by the artist John Puel, who's an artist from Niue, a island in the South Pacific that Cook visited. And uh, it's nice of the label to include the fact that the British called Niue a savage island because of a violent confrontation. There's not much history at this point of that confrontation. I wonder if that'll be referred to later on. But uh, John Puel is drawing on the images uh, by Cook's accompanying artists to try and represent some of these moments of encounter. So some of the little sketchy fragments of this image include scenes that do look very very familiar to me that I think are drawn from a Hodges drawing from the second voyage Um, and it's yeah really interesting to see this as an artist's response to the Europeans looking at the Pacific coming from the Pacific because that's an angle that you often don't get to see in these images and so it's really nice to have a bit of a sense of that as a kind of balancing out of the narrative right as we go in. So I'm quite excited about that. There's also quite a large globe showing the roots of the Cook Voyages, which is always a useful way of grounding, again, to have these maps is really very effective. Um, There's a lot of emphasis so far on the way that Cook was really a cartographer. He's a map maker. He is someone who is very skilled in mapping. And so immediately off the bat, we're getting this sense that this is a scientific voyage and he's going to record things as they are and survey and observe. Um, There's the Weber portrait of Cook, which is part of the National Portrait Gallery collection, although it is never on display there, which is a real shame. It's going to be clearly that this is going to be an exhibition all about Cook, and it's going to very much tie to him as an individual. We're really interested to see the way the exhibition troubles that, if at all. So coming down the stairs, the actual rooms of this exhibition are a little tangled. Um, If you've ever heard one of my British Library reviews before, you'll know that they have a very big space and they tend to move the walls around to divide it in different ways. So you immediately come into a space called the Enlightenment. Um, There is the Joseph Frank portrait, which is usually in the National Portrait Gallery and is usually one of the stops on my tours there, which is all about showing Banks as a man of the world and an explorer. Um, He's very much the sort of young and dashing hero. He's suitably 
dressed to convey his status, but he's not wearing a wig, it's not an excessively formal portrait, and there's this sense of the, the horizon kind of out through the window that really reminds us he is a traveller. The label does mention the fact that Banks was later instrumental in the establishment of a British penal colony in Australia. It doesn't then go into any more detail over the fact that this was quite overwhelmingly an ego trip for Banks. Um, the area that he recommended for the penal colony was Botany Bay, which he had named and had been very instrumental in the sort of first British arrival there, um, which proved to be an entirely unsuitable location. So he actually wasn't that helpful in the establishment of the colony in the end. It's interesting to come straight into a room called the Enlightenment, and it's very much emphasising the way that European science is drawing on knowledge from all over the world, but interpreting them to suit their own ends. So the Enlightenment kind of understanding of knowledge is very happy to sort of borrow from other educational um, systems and other hierarchies of science and of knowledge, but often doesn't then do credit to them in their context and focuses overwhelmingly instead on the way that they can be used to serve a British imperialist end. As always, it's a British library exhibition, so there are a lot of books and works on paper, but it's quite nicely lit this time, which is a positive change. Um, It's also good to see this kind of cabinet, uh, which seems to be imitating a cabinet of curiosities. It's in amongst some objects belonging to Banks, including his gardener's dictionary and other um, botanical texts that he owned. But there's no information as to whether the actual individual specimens shown in this case belong to Banks or if they're just contemporary to him. No, I can't see any information about that, which is a shame. They might not even be contemporary. It would have been great with this case to see a kind of breakdown of the ways that knowledge is being constructed at this time and to have more of a sense of the way that the Age of Enlightenment and these kind of new museums of enlightenment are breaking away from the pre-existing Cabinet of Curiosities format in which you see the blending of the natural and the man-made to a much greater extent. The rooms in this exhibition are divided into voyages, so I'm going to go chronologically through the voyages and hopefully, hopefully that will make sense. It's a little bit of a labyrinth, but I'm going to head into voyage one. Again, there's a globe with Cook's route marked, which is quite useful to see, and okay, so there's immediately a gun. All right, this is more than I expected. Violence is part of the story of James Cook's voyages. Yes, it's good to see that acknowledged. Um, So this is a musket that's very similar to the kind that was used at the time of the Endeavour voyage. Um, It's fascinating, actually, to see small shot musket balls and cannonballs and to get a bit of a sense of what exactly the technology that these Europeans are bringing with them on their sort of supposedly scientific journey is. So... This emphasis is still very much on the fact that the first voyage is uh, sort of organised by the Royal Society to observe the transit of Venus. The idea is that this is very much a scientific narrative and it's good to see the acknowledgement of violence, but it's important also to recognise the fact that science is being used in the service of national power. It's... um. Worth pointing out that the gallery text really focuses on the fact that Cook is supposed to be searching for the great southern land, this kind of mythical southern continent. It's then interesting to see, in opposition to the gun, the fact that he's supposed to be cultivating a friendship with its inhabitants. 
if any of you know anything about the history of Captain Cook, you'll know that most of his first encounters with Indigenous people end in violence. It's overwhelmingly a... It's a trip in which a lot of blood is shed and a lot of incredibly violent relations that then go on to shape the history of empire, identity, modern conditions and legacies of those questions in Australia, across the Pacific, in America today. This is something that we are all still living with. And so while it's good to see a recognition of the fact that there is this kind of imperialist project to Cook's work, I wonder if starting with the Enlightenment and really situating it in the context of science is slightly muffling that. I hope to see, as I go through the exhibition, more acknowledgement of these contemporary legacies because I haven't really got much of a sense of that so far. This does seem to be very historicised. I don't know. So in amongst these kind of beginnings of acknowledging the um, colonial and ultimately settler ambitions of the Cook Voyages, we've got one of the maps of Rio de Janeiro and some of the botanical specimens that were part of Joseph Cook's collection, uh, Joseph Banks' collection, sorry. And, I mean, again, there's this very strong emphasis on science. It's funny to see these two specimens presented totally in isolation. I would have liked to see some more contextualisation of how these are then being represented by the Europeans, but, you know, there's some specimens in jars. It's not the most thrilling gallery exhibit. Moving on into the next space, uh, which focuses on Tierra del Fuego, is the southernmost point of South America, and it was the most southerly inhabited region in the globe at that that time. Okay, so the uh, displays in this room are focusing on the images and uh, objects collected from the Hausch people um, before the depopulation of the region caused by colonial conflict and disease in the late 19th century. So this is interesting. Um, We're seeing an acknowledgement of the fact that the Cook voyages mark a really crucial point in the story of colonial violence and control. Um, These are images by Alexander Buchan, who later died in Tahiti. And it's kind of amazing for me to see his watercolours and sketches. I've never seen these in person before. Um, And they're very detailed and they do give a sense of the indigenous people collaborating well with the Europeans, um, camping together and showing them food. There's no sense of whether there's any coercion in this or the levels of consent that are given by the the Hausch people. So there's a drawing made by Buchan that shows a family sheltering in their hut and there's no information from the labels as to how this image was made. There's no sense in whether um, he got permission to draw them or he's kind of working from imagination or sketches of the family group outside and then the house inside. It's a little unclear. It is fascinating to see uh, images commissioned by Banks alongside objects from his collection and to see the way that these objects are being represented um, as they are collected. So many of the images made by Buchan were intended for publication in Banks's journal and it's just useful to be able to see, again, this kind of translation process. I'm sure this will come up later, but there's a phrase used by the Australian art historian Bernard Smith to describe the process of Europeans making images 
at this time, specifically with the Cook Voyages and the early um, colonists to Australia, which is this idea of European vision. So even when they're outside of Europe, they are bringing all of their preconceptions and assumptions um, and the way that they've been trained. And there's really a process of translation at work in their image making as they try and communicate in a way that will make sense to their European audience. So it's quite useful to see this. Again, though, there's no sense of how these objects were acquired. There's no information about whether they were bought and under what circumstances. And I find it very difficult to look at these objects and images when there's no acknowledgement of the potential duress that their owners were placed under by these Europeans. So moving out of this space and going into Tahiti, there's a telescope, obviously, to acknowledge the fact that this is a scientific journey and it's all about all about studying the transit of Venus. Um, but we're also immediately seeing the images um, made by the British and the fact that they build instantly, they build Fort Venus, which is becomes their kind of command centre, becomes the space that they hold as a defensive position, but also becomes a kind of negotiation and meeting point. So right from the beginning there is a permanent structure being established by Cook and his crew. So instantly we have a form of settler colonialism in a way that's often not acknowledged in these stories. That's It's immediately about setting up a permanent location and creating some kind of permanent mark on the landscape. There are some very beautiful maps by um, George Pinnock and others of the crew as they're trying to sort of chart these landscapes and what's really interesting is that many of them just feature these kind of big blank voids in the middle of the landscape but they've got King George's Island written on them so if you're going to try and present this as an exhibition you know that focuses on the development of science without also grappling with these bigger questions about settlement and colony you're kind of missing something a lot of the reviews I've seen of this show really focus on the fact that It's supposed to be all about science and technology and discovery and they've tended to glide over the conflict and violence that's part of this narrative. I wonder why that is. I wonder if it's because they are mostly written by... uh, Many of the reviews I've seen have been written by British um, art critics who maybe aren't equipped to deal with this, but I'm frustrated by it nonetheless. Um, And I find it quite troubling that so much of the discussion around this exhibition I've seen has skimmed over these imperialist ambitions. And I know it sounds like I'm kind of harping on about this, but you really can't divorce it. So we're finally getting to the thing I was most excited to see, which are the incredible drawings by Tobaya, um, which were made sort of in consultation with Cook and his crew, but are remarkable for the fact that they are images made at the time of the first voyage by a man from Raiatea who is an incredibly knowledgeable and powerful individual who is showing his world the way he sees it. These images were mostly only attributed to Tupaya in the 90s and several of them are still unconfirmed. There's been discussion recently as to how to read some of the maps that he made and his role in these early voyages is still quite disputed. Um, It's also interesting to see the journal of Robert Molino, who had already visited Tahiti and 
is one of the Europeans who begins this kind of obsession with Purea, who was a Tahitian woman who the Europeans, for whatever reason, read as the queen of the island. The label on Molino's journal does reference the fact that she becomes this kind of mythical figure, but it doesn't go into the way that this was constructed by the excessive sexualizing of Purea and the kind of overwhelmingly um, orientalist Orientalist isn't quite the right word because we're talking about the Pacific, but a similar kind of sexual fetishization of Porea and of other um, Polynesian and Tahitian women. This is a narrative that continues well into the 19th and 20th centuries as well. There's um, these early representations of Tahitian women and women of the Pacific focus overwhelmingly on constructing them as sexual objects and this is something that has huge and lingering consequences it feeds into the construction of Tahiti as some kind of paradise on earth which prompts artists like Gauguin to go there expecting to find some kind of ridiculous fantasy landscape um, but it also feeds into the huge amounts of sexual violence perpetrated on women in the Pacific and indigenous women more generally by white settlers and explorers and colonists throughout this period. It's a little alarming to me to see this mentioned without any of that kind of, without any of those caveats. So we've also got uh, in amongst the Tapaya images illustrations made by Sidney Parkinson, who was one of Banks's main illustrators and actually died on his way back from the voyage, so was never able to work up his drawings into the finished paintings that they were intended to be. Which is really interesting because it means that unlike some of the other artists like William Hodges, the only images that we have from Parkinson are kind of the first sketches. They're unedited, unfiltered more of a kind of observation of what's going on around him and obviously Parkinson has an eye to the future and is consciously creating these images and focusing on the details that he sort of wants and expects to see but it's done in a very different way because they're still his early drawings and in many ways they're more useful to us uh, especially when shown in parallel to Tapaya's images as they are here because you can see two men working on depicting the same scene, often working alongside each other to depict the same scenes. And it's really interesting to notice what they focus on. So Tapaya's scenes of Tahitian life are all foreground. They are about the people on the boats and the house and the trees kind of in order in a way that makes sense. It's very cleanly um, worked and illustrates the kind of clearly the main points of communication that he was attempting to get through to these Europeans. It focuses on things like the breadfruit trees and the war canoes and the way that they are sailed. Whereas Parkinson's drawings include many of these details as well, but they have a greater depth of field to them. So they include um, they include the mountains and the landscapes behind. And it's really interesting looking at this scene of what's titled here a house and plantation of a Tahitian chief that you can actually see that he painted this as a complete landscape and then added the human figures so you can actually see through the figures of the women and the child and the, the rooster of some kind and you can get the sense that his main goal is depicting the landscape and the people are added in later which is really fascinating to see
I'm going to skip around a bit rather than giving a detailed response to everything. It's really fantastic to see the early copy of Tobias Map, probably by Captain Cook. Um, it's interesting the way that it's presented in this exhibition because the emphasis is very much on the fact that the Europeans don't know how to read it. Whereas we know that in Tahiti, Topaya is an incredibly knowledgeable and incredibly powerful man. And his work and his mapping are absolutely crucial uh, on the island. They give him a huge amount of power and status. So when Topaya travels with the crew of the Endeavour, his status shifts. And they don't know how to read his knowledge. That doesn't mean it's invalid. It just means it's, it's different to what they expect. There's been a lot of discussion recently as to how to actually read Topaya's map, and I will share some links online when I post this um, to some work by some amazing researchers that have actually tried mapping according to Topaya's vision and trying to unravel the way that he he makes these images. Um, yeah, I'm going to share that link rather than trying to describe it right now. But suffice to say that... It is a different way of seeing the world, and that doesn't make it invalid, it just makes it different. And I would have loved it if the exhibition had given slightly more weight to the fact that Topaya's knowledge is incredible and powerful, and just because it's not what the Europeans expect doesn't mean it's not important to them and doesn't mean it doesn't sort of help them enormously. Okay, so now we're in New Zealand, and... Uh, there's an acknowledgement of the enormous amount of violence perpetrated by Cook and his companions on Aotearoa and on the Maori people. It's interesting to me that there's an acknowledgement of the fact that the moment Cook arrives in Aotearoa, he is committing murder. There is instantly death. And it's important to see that marked. Um... It's also interesting to me that they've included a image of the arrival in New Zealand of uh, Abel Tasman. You might notice I'm switching between Aotearoa and New Zealand. Um, Aotearoa is the proper Maori name for the place, but obviously most people who I expect to be listening to this podcast will know it as New Zealand, so that's that's why. Um, so the arrival of Tasman in Aotearoa is similarly marked by death several of his men are killed and it, it, there's no record of whether any Maori people are killed in that encounter as well so there's a bit of a sense here of this missing narrative um, there's a bit of a sense of the fact that Topaya was travelling with Cook at this time and serving as a translator and an intermediary and the suggestion that perhaps if he had been treated with more respect and a greater understanding um by Cook, he may have been allowed to step ashore first, he may have been allowed to act as a negotiator, he may have been able to avert some of this violence. But we can't do speculative history, we can't do what-ifs, and we're left with what actually happens, which is immediate murder by the Europeans. Um... There are also some of Sidney Parkinson's, frankly, incredible drawings of Maori life that are made at this time. So these are the earliest, some of the earliest depictions. Um, as I've already mentioned, Parkinson dies on the voyage back to Britain in 1771, but 
many of the images he makes in Aotearoa are portraits of significant Maori figures, um, although many of them, their names are not recorded. And it's very clear from the accompanying sort of captions in his journal that the intention is to document them as as typical examples, as specimens, rather than noting the individuals and their personal stories. It is clearer in this space that the only reasons that the British have any kind of remotely peaceful or successful encounters in Aotearoa are because of the intermediation of Tupaya. And there is an acknowledgement of the role that he plays at Tolaga Bay, where his knowledge is what encourages the Maori leaders to bring the British ashore, allow them to refill their water, and allow them to spend some time in the bay. I just wish the exhibition was more consistent in its characterization of Tupaya. So one of the Parkinson portraits is described in his journal as of a man called Otagugu, um, which is apparently a British mishearing of his actual name, which was Tekuku, which has issues to it. So then we're working backwards from this, this recorded British knowledge, because the indigenous knowledge has not been treated with the same amount of respect, with the same amount of um, historical weight. And so we're left with the fact that actually this man's tattoos are very unusual for the area. They're unique, but we don't know why or at least in the exhibition we're not told why we have this man whose name is possibly Tekuku but it's very difficult to know for sure and again you know we have no sense of his facial tattooing the regions this this is sketchy and it's kind of bad exhibition practice to have this many gaps in the narrative one thing I will say though is that the videos in this exhibition, although they are constant and a little difficult to hear because of the amount of noise, do all have subtitles, which is important, and most of them feature people speaking in indigenous languages. So the one in this room has several people speaking in the Maori language, which is really important to have these voices actually audible in this space. It brings the narrative to life in a different way by acknowledging the the livingness of the language and its people. Okay, so we're in Australia, and straight off the bat, I'm going to say that the emphasis on the date that the first people are believed to have arrived in Australia is extremely bad practice because it doesn't reflect. According to Dreaming and Dreamtime, people have always been in Australia. They have always been there in that continent, and to try and put a date on that arrival is considered actually extremely disrespectful um, because it focuses on a European form of knowledge and it privileges the British understanding of time rather than respecting indigenous uh, narratives and indigenous forms of history. I've got a nice little note here saying Australia Day, which celebrates the arrival of the first fleet of British ships in 1788, now also prompts protests over the treatment of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people under colonial rule. Statues of Cook have been defaced in recent years. I find this phrasing a little frustrating because it suggests that these are... It makes these protests sound unfounded, which they are absolutely not. And by referring to it as Australia Day, rather than saying the 26th of January, which is referred to as either Australia Day or Invasion Day, you know, there are, there are better ways of doing this. I'm obviously being 
uh, fussy at this point, but I feel like if you're going to do an exhibition about Captain Cook, you've got to be prepared for people to be fussy and for people to criticise your mistakes. Weird little note about Cook's account of the first landing of the Endeavour that, you know, the entry records his account of a confrontation with two men armed with spears who opposed the British landing. Cook later wrote a more detailed account in his journal. The story has since been retold many times. There's no mention here of the fact that that first account ends in bloodshed. Cook fires a musket and a Guaycal man on what is now called Botany Bay, where Cook and the Endeavour fleet land, is shot in the leg. He is possibly killed. We don't know what happens after that point, but we know that right from the start there is violence here. Again, it's always violence right at the beginning. It's frustrating to me to see this incident referred to as something that's been told many times and occupies a significant position, and then for the exhibition curators to not expand on what that significant position in Australian history is, because this is a moment that defines the kind of contact space of Australia. It, it, shapes, it shapes the entire history of relations between settler Australians and Indigenous Australians by creating this moment of first contact where there is bloodshed on the side of the Indigenous, and there's no mention either here of the Guaygal Shield which is probably an attempt by the British Library to get out of dealing with the controversy around this subject. Um, the Guaygal Shield is currently in the British Museum. It is claimed for repatriation to Australia by a Guaygal man called Rodney Kelly, who is the direct descendant of the man who was shot by Cook and dropped the shield. This is an object that has been enormously controversial recently and for a very long time, but it's been in kind of public... Uh, knowledge in Europe recently for the first time because the British Museum are alternately presenting it as absolutely the object of the first encounter and saying things like they know exactly what date it comes into Cook's hands in Neil McGregor's History of the World and 100 Objects to a few weeks ago um, claiming that there's absolutely no way of knowing when the shield dates from and that it's impossible to say if this shield is even Guaygal in origin which speaks to a attempt at controlling the narrative and controlling the knowledge, resisting critique and changing the rules of the game whenever it suits the institution. This shield is not in the exhibition, but I'm telling you about this because it's so important to have this context and to know that there is this object that is tied to this moment of first encounter and to this moment of violence, but to know that the exhibition isn't acknowledging that and the British Library is making absolutely no mention of the death of this Guaygal man and the subsequent looting many of the Guaygal settlements and homes along the coast of what is now called Botany Bay in New South Wales by Cook and his men and the fact that Banks takes several objects um, that have been hastily abandoned by the Guaygal people as they flee from the Europeans and those objects are now in collections in the UK. So even the video in this section, which does acknowledge the fact that Cook's history is incredibly unsettled in Australia and includes images of um, statues of Cook that have been covered with graffiti as part of the Change the Date campaigns and part of the reaction to the way that Cook is still being treated by a hero by so many in white Australia 
doesn't actually get into this violence. There's this kind of fleeting <laughs> mention of the fact that violence occurs at the first arrival in what is now Kamai Botany Bay Park, but they don't actually go into detail of what that violence was. And I can't help but feel that the exhibition and the curators in the British Library want to be seen to pay lip service to the fact that this is a violent history, this is a traumatic history, and this is a history that Australia and Britain need to grapple with, but that they don't actually want to do a lot of the work of facing it and talking about it and naming it. You know, you can call him a controversial figure, but if you don't talk about why he's controversial, then what's the point? Okay, so a little more now, uh, coming back into this space, which is called Returns and Departures, focusing on the way that Tahiti is quickly mythologised by the Europeans. There's a fleeting mention of the fact that in Hawksworth's text, um, the official kind of journal of the Endeavour voyage, the engravings of um, scenes in Tahiti draw very heavily on... European uh, imagery and understandings of classical sculpture. There's also the fact that these kind of narratives that focus on the overwhelming similarity, apparently the perceived similarity between the people of Tahiti and the Europeans, was later instrumental in their colonial experience. There's a little mention on the wall to the fact that you know Australia and New Zealand are of less interest to the Europeans than to this kind of sensationalised image of Tahiti. And it would be good to see a bit more recognition of the way that actually, you know, this interest or lack of interest is dramatically shaped by fantasies and projections and these artists and the fact that the images of people in Tahiti translate more directly into European images because of the nature of things like bark cloth clothing can be read as looking like classical drapery and so the artists have a greater time a much easier time translating that again it comes back to this idea of European vision and the fact that the images of Australia in particular are less obviously conforming to those visual conventions and so the translation process is different and it happens later with the construction of Australia as this kind of obviously Australia is not terra nullius but the construction of Australia as the great empty land the most appropriate place to establish a penal colony which is hugely influenced by Joseph Banks Coming now into the second voyage. So this is all about the Antarctic. I have less background um, information on this on this voyage, but I want to go through it sort of and give my reactions again anyway. So this section focuses far more on the idea of um, the cook voyage as a process of exploration it's all about discovery the video at the beginning of this section does mention the fact that thousands of seals and whales are massacred off the back of this and their populations of wildlife are hugely damaged by these european explorers by their attempts to um find the 
find the Arctic Circle. And, you know, obviously the official narrative of the expedition is that they are to look for the South Pole. But as part of that, of course, they have commercial interests as well. And they're looking for things that can be hunted and things that can be profitable. And it's good to see that acknowledged. I'd like a little more time spent on the environmental consequences, but it's good to at least see it present. Good to see mention of the fact that the British are obsessed with the idea of finding a single ruler for each of the islands that they visit. There's a portrait here of Atayonga, who is a man on the island of Tongatapu. Um, Later, (laughs) Atayonga introduces Cook to more senior chiefs of the island and the Europeans realise that Atayonga is not the kind of ultimate king. This obsession with hierarchy and the consequences of that could be explored a little further here, but it's at least it's really good to see the fact that the exhibition, you know, is acknowledging this as a shortcoming and the fact that this is this is one of the most obvious and tangible examples of the Europeans seeing what they expect to see rather than what's actually there. The search for a kind of single ruler in every area that they go to is quite a useful way of understanding the the narrow-mindedness with which they approach these new landscapes. They're going to discover the world, but they find what they expect to find. There are some absolutely stunning, large-scale um, ink-and-wash drawings by William Hodges in this room. Hodges is an artist who I mainly know through his later paintings. So all of these drawings are then worked up into um, oil paintings, the kind of more traditional, accessible f- art form. And those representations are hugely influential in Europe. Hodges is one of the artists that I talk about. Uh, because many of his paintings are on display in the Queen's House at the National Maritime Museum, and I imagine that Hodges' images will have a pretty big role to play in their new Explorers Gallery when that opens in September. In the meantime, it's really good to see these early sketches. Obviously, they are on quite a grand scale. They're very impressive. They're not sort of instant doodles. But it's interesting to me to see... So just as I was recording that last part, all of the lights in the gallery went out and we were plunged into darkness for a moment. I'm not sure what happened. Um, It was probably just like a little power cut or something. But I, you know, if it turns out that there was a extremely high speed heist and uh, some objects (laughs) will be forcibly repatriated to their places of origin, I'm not mad about it. Moving on. There are some really quite charming uh, images by George Forster of the birds of the Antarctic. And these are just, they're just quite lovely, you know, they're just some pretty sweet images. He was very young when he joined the voyage. Um, Yeah, they're just, they're just beautiful. They're just very pretty. Um, It's rare that I can be in an exhibition like this and talk about something just being pretty, but... I just love his drawing of the penguin. There's something extremely endearing about it. Lots of images of icebergs in this section. And to be honest, when you've seen one, you've seen them all. So I'm going to move on from the icebergs 
and return briefly to the London section of the exhibition before moving on to Voyage 3. It's quite interesting to me the way that the story of London is kind of threaded through the voyages of the exhibition. It's good to see an acknowledgement of the fact that, you know, these expeditions are all being fantasized about and created back in London, back in Britain. And this part of the London section um, focuses on the arrival of Mai in London in 1774. Mai is the first Polynesian person to visit Britain and his representation in art is quite fascinating um, for his official portraits painted by uh, William Parry and Joshua Reynolds. He's dressed in Polynesian bark cloth, but we know from other accounts that he actually frequently adopted European dress. So Mai is a figure that performs his identity in really fascinating ways. He is capable of acting up to this kind of noble savage fantasy that the Europeans have for him, but he's also capable of exerting his own authority. And the fact that he chooses dress as a European is really interesting. Um, I see that as a reflection of the fact that Mai is a character who is able to kind of code switch when it suits him. So he's very capable of playing the role that's required of him. And that's one of the things that gives him such influence among the among the uh, the crew of Cook's ship. So unfortunately, there's not a huge amount of Mai's story in this exhibition. Um although there is a quite uh, delightful snippet of the satirical poem that was written imagining Mai's opinions on the English nation. And it's funny to see that and to see that represented. I would like to have a way of accessing this text a little more, and I will look into that because I think it's really interesting. If I can find a copy of it, I'll link to it. Um, But otherwise... It's interesting to see the way that Polynesian um, islands are being constructed in Europe at this time. So, there's a letter um, from Captain Cook referring to the fact that he's concerned about the stories of sexual adventures, which is incredibly hilariously coy phrasing on the part of the curators, uh, around the Europeans in, in Tahiti. And Cook is emphasizing the fact that he thinks it's unnecessary to mention it to anybody because it is a more of a reflection on the character or the customs of the people they were among than of the British. I think that's a little um, sketchy and is a extremely typical abdication of responsibility uh, that, you know, as I've already been saying, feeds into these fantasies that are created, especially around Tahiti as this place of enormous sexual liberation. And those are stories and fantasies that have huge and lasting legacies today as well. So something that you do get from this room is the fact that Mai does not have a huge amount of... um, agency his voice is very muffled in this room many of the images and stories in this space focus on banks and his kind of care of my we even see the uh one of the famous parkinson maori portraits appropriated 
to represent Mai. Mai is a man that is, he is not Maori. He is transformed into the kind of generic, unfamiliar, savage figure for the sake of the, the sake of the narratives that the Europeans want to create at this time. Coming into the third voyage and the final section of the exhibition, the narrative that's created by the Admiralty to excuse this third expedition is that it's supposed to return my home. Um, but, of course, in fact, this is an attempt to discover the Northwest Passage in the North Pacific and the idea that from Europe to the Americas uh, it'll be possible to kind of go over the top rather than across um, across the Atlantic. So there are issues, obviously, with the ideas of mapping. And so much of this exhibition has focused on map making and the discovery of knowledge and these whole enlightenment fantasies of cataloguing the world and understanding everything. There has not been enough space given to the politics of that mapping and the fact that at this time, Britain is engaged in a race with France and with the rest of Europe to try and gain control as quickly as possible. And I would have liked to see a little more acknowledgement of that, a little more critical space, rather than just this emphasis on exploration and travel. I, this, the Northwest Passage is a dream that proves to be enormously destructive and enormously violent for many people. Um, it's the quest, I guess, that uh, John Franklin is on when his ships, the Erebus and the Terror, are trapped in the ice and lost it's an incredibly um dangerous route and the way that it's been created throughout history means that it's been a place where many many people have died often <laughs> the reason that they have died is that they have not listened to the indigenous knowledge that has been offered to them and particularly in the case of the Franklin expedition, those ships are lost for so long and it takes so long for them to be recovered because the search parties that go out looking for them do not listen to the Inuit knowledge and do not take into account other forms of understanding and forms of mapping, but also just straight up fact because they're not presented by a recognisable European source. There's an image in this section made by Weber that shows Cook watching a ceremony on Mororea, which is an island close to Tahiti. This is a really, really famous image. Um, it shows the Europeans attending a human sacrifice of some kind. Uh, the details are really sketchy, and the descriptions of this event vary enormously. But this is an image that is then imitated and appropriated by many other artists and read as a narrative of cannibalism. I've talked elsewhere about the kind of cannibalist fear that um, dominates the Cook voyages and voyages in the South Pacific for a very long time. And as part of that, I want to just touch on this image for a moment. It, it represents, again, the Europeans seeing what they expect to see. They construct this event as evidence of a brutal people with no civilization and no humanity. 
a way that this image is then used as part of a cannibalist narrative is really interesting because it speaks to this kind of ultimate colonial fear that you lose control over your body and your body is consumed by the unfamiliar, which is kind of the ultimate representation of the paranoia around going native. So I would have liked to see a little acknowledgement of that and a little acknowledgement of the way that these images as made by Hodges and Weber, sorry, made by Weber, are absolutely steeped in paranoia. I'm skimming through the section on the Northwest Passage uh, to focus on how the death of Cook in Hawaii is presented. The text of the exhibition immediately refers to the fact that these are some of the most controversial stories from the voyage and the fact that there's still so much debate and discussion around the responsibility for Cook's death, how it actually happens. Um, Here we do have a bit of a sense that there are, you know, originally uh, fairly positive um, positive relations with the High Chief of Hawaii, uh, Kalani Opu, um, but there's this delightfully passive phrasing of relations deteriorated over the following days. That's an abdication of responsibility. The Cook Party attempts to take Kalani Opu hostage, uh, which is something that he's done repeatedly throughout his voyages in the past. There has been no mention of Cook's hostage-taking until this point. So for this to suddenly be introduced right at the end, you know, the text does acknowledge that this is something he's done before, but it would have been really completely different if we'd had that contextualised and we'd had a greater narrative of, of the fact that Cook is doing what he wants to get what he wants. The attempt at taking... Kalani Opu hostage is it's not the first time Cook has done something like this it's absolutely in character with what he's been doing all along and again we're kind of eliding over the violence and abdicating that responsibility there are a few mentions of the kind of chaos and skirmish of Cook's death but in this room we're mostly presented with diaries and no um transcripts of the text in them so unless you want to spend a lot of time reading 18th century handwriting you're not going to get the accounts that are given by cook's uh companions of his death so if we're talking about the fact that this is an enormously controversial story we're also not actually getting that story and immediately it's over um so now there's a book about venereal disease in hawaii uh which, you know, great, really helpful. Um, this isn't this isn't adequate. This is completely inadequate when it comes to dealing with Cook's legacy and that violence. And there is a slideshow of images um, by artists, you know, that acknowledges that on February 14, 1779, Cook is killed in Hawaii and the fact that those accounts are confused and contradictory. But unless we have those accounts presented to us, we cannot possibly unravel them. The first engraving showing Cook's death is not published until two years later. And already this is an image that's being made in Europe uh, based on fantasy. There's the Weber image of Cook's death as well, but similarly this is constructed. We know from the diaries that there's very little detail on how Cook was actually killed because the skirmish is so 
violent. Uh, some artists show Cook leading his men into battle. Some show him being attacked by the savages. It's really, really difficult to unravel this. And to be honest, the exhibition needs to do a better job of dealing with this. It needs to do a better job of addressing the violence that has taken place throughout Cook's voyages, of putting this in its proper context. When you skip over the violence of Cook's first encounters, when you skip over the fact that his tendency is to take hostages when he doesn't get what he wants, and he often will shoot a gun before he asks questions, is really, really troubling to then have this narrative being presented of, well, we just don't know what happened. Maybe it was violent, maybe it wasn't, you know. It's just not clear. And that that's not, it's not okay. To put that alongside as well, the fact that Cook is presented in so many places as this kind of founding hero, especially in Australia, there's so much narrative of Cook as the, the beginning of Australia, you know, and the slideshow does include E. Phillips Fox's 1902 painting, which is easily the most famous representation of Captain Cook arriving in Botany Bay. And the fact that it's it's this absolutely iconic image, and it's great that they've included Daniel Boyd's response to that image, which is part of the We Call Them Pirates Here series. But it's not... It's just not really enough. I get the impression that the curators would have liked to include more of these paintings, maybe, or more of these images but that perhaps they couldn't get them on loan, and so instead we're left with books and a slideshow, which skims over each of these images very, very fast, so you have no opportunity to look at them side by side and to compare them and to draw them out and to unravel these narratives as they're being constructed. This is enormously frustrating. I have said in the past when I've done podcasts about exhibitions at the British Library, they have a tendency to rely on books Obviously, they're a library. They have many, many images in their collection, and many of those images are included in this exhibition. But the fact that they are a text-based curatorial system means that, you know, we're presented with copies of someone's diary with no transcript, with no images, with no illustrations, with no sense of how events actually unfolded. And the fact that all of these diaries acknowledge the fact that no one could get a clear view of the skirmishes no one could get a real sense of what was happening on the beach the witnesses are all extremely confused and there's very very little detail as to the actual moments of cook's death and then to present the illustrations of this and the way that it's constructed in fantasy it's just it's just troubling because it perpetrates myths by not questioning them it's not enough to say Oh, well, it's a little unclear how Cook died if you're not also going to do the work of showing Cook's um, entry into myth. And for one of the engravings in the film to be the apotheosis of Cook and that incredibly famous image of him being accepted in heaven by Britannia, and to not have that image on show, to not have some of the critical responses to that image on show, is to endorse by passivity... It, it's a kind of silent complicity in the mythologization of Cook. So that's it. I'm out now. Um, this exhibition is frustrating. It falls short in many cases. It doesn't do justice to the narratives that it's trying to represent. And I'm frustrated by the fact that 
they seem quite willing to leave some things unchallenged, it could be so much more critical. It could be so much more engaged with the legacies of Cook Voyages. And while I can understand that they just want to show the images and they want to show the diaries and things like that, I wonder who this exhibition serves. Because when you present a historical exhibition of the material of a moment in time that is absolutely fraught and defined by conflict without including the responses and the critiques of that. When you say, we're just going to look at Captain Cook, we're not going to look at the way artists respond to his legacies today, the way he's being reconsidered today, you are complicit in allowing the myths that he creates to continue. And that's really dangerous. So that was a little different. Um, I haven't ever done a podcast that way before. I've never done it as I walk around the exhibition. I don't know if it worked or not, Um, but ultimately I think it was quite important for me at least to have a way of kind of channeling my immediate responses to this exhibition. The reason that it's taken me so long to get to this show is that I've genuinely been kind of afraid of what I'd find. I wanted this to be a critically engaged exhibition, but on some level I obviously knew that it wouldn't be. And yeah, I'm just really disappointed. The Cook Voyages exhibition is running at the British Library until the 28th of August. Um, it's moderately expensive. Um, it's £13 for full price admission or £7 with a National Art Pass or a student card. I don't recommend it without reservations. I think if you know what you're going for, and you're willing to go into an exhibition like this and kind of do all of the work of criticism for yourself, then you'll get something out of it. If you're going to see that work being done for you, you're not going to find it here. This is a space where you have to be willing and able to basically take on all of the the intellectual criticism for yourself. You can't rely on the exhibition and the gallery to do it for you. That's often the case with British Library exhibitions. And, you know, if you've listened to the podcast in the past, you'll know that I do have problems with the way that they curate their shows. So if you have seen this and if you have got any opinions on it, if you agree or disagree with the things that I've said, I'd really like to hear. Um, You can contact me in all the usual places. You can drop me an email at exhibitionistpod at gmail.com. You can contact me via my website, which is theexhibitionist.org. Uh, my Facebook page and always on Twitter as well as AA Proctor and I would be really interested to see how you respond to this um yeah I just don't know I felt kind of as much as I didn't want to get my hopes up going into this exhibition I was really disappointed by it and that's a massive shame but anyway thank you so much for listening Um, I'll be back with more episodes throughout August of exhibition reviews, maybe some more kind of audio guide formats like this one. If you think it works, let me know. If you think it doesn't, let me know. That's it for today, though. Thank you. Bye.